All right. Uh, so Rachel mentioned uh, the winter retreat. We'd love to have you guys come on that. Uh, professor at Ozark Christian College by the name of Mike Ackerman is going to be there sharing with us about some different attributes of God. And uh, he's a great teacher, a great speaker. And so we'd love to have you there. And she mentioned that you could sign up through uh, texting that number there. Um, if you have been around very long at all, you, you know the story I'm about to tell you because it's one of our favorites that's connected to this. And uh, that is that our, our very first time that we had this option right here to text, to sign up for things, we were so excited about it. It was actually for one of our retreats. I think it was for a fall retreat. Um, but we were so excited about it. We had this ability now, and we thought we're going to be so cool with college students because we're, we're speaking their language, you know, texts to, to get connected here. And so, we've, we, so we set the number up here. We were so excited. We announced to everybody. We're like, all right. And for the first time, if you guys want to come to the retreat, you can do it by just texting this number right here. And, uh, and so we told them, and then we went through the night, and we waited. And then we went and checked the signups, and nobody had signed up. And we were a little bit like kind of bummed about that. We thought maybe it was kind of just, uh, you know, busy. They were paying attention to the lesson. They were singing, whatever. So we'll wait till tomorrow. And we wait and we check it tomorrow. Nobody has signed up. And, and we waited another day and nobody signed up. And so we're starting to get a little bit freaked out that either A, um, college students don't want to go to our retreat or B, our college students are the only ones in the world who don't know how to text things. And, um, you know, something's going on where they don't want to sign up this way. We don't know what it is. And, and we're starting to get frustrated. And then all of a sudden, we started hearing from some of our students who were saying, hey, I, I texted the number. I tried to sign up and nothing happened. Like, I didn't, get a, I didn't get a confirmation. I didn't get a little form to fill out, anything. So we heard somebody say that. And then another person told us that. And then another person told us that. And then, like, another person said, I think they said, hey, I sent a thing to the number, and it responded back and said, stop texting me. <laughs> and then we started thinking maybe some of those up. So we went and checked, and it turns out that we had actually written the wrong number up on the screen. And it, of course, wasn't just some random turned-off number. It was some guy in the 405 area code's number. And so some poor guy got his phone just blown up by table students for like 48 hours. But the best part is that he didn't just get it blown up. He got it blown up with because we did the exact same thing. We said, if you would like to sign up, then just text the word retreat to this number. So, so like over a course of 48 hours, this dude, I've tried to like put myself in his shoes. He's just sitting there in his house one night. And all of a sudden, he just gets a text from a number that he doesn't know, and he looks down, and it says, retreat. <laughs> and he probably, I imagine, in my mind, the first time, he's just kind of like, okay, we wrong number, whatever, somebody got it wrong, he sets aside. And then like a minute later, his phone goes off again from another number that he doesn't know that also is telling him to retreat. And that probably gets a little weird, but by like the fourth or fifth time that comes in five minutes, like at what point do you start to get a little paranoid? Do you start to go like, retreat from what? Who, who's coming to get me, you know? And I don't know, but I like to picture him by like, you know, hour 40, every time he gets a text, just like screaming and running out of whatever room he was in. Um, I have no idea, but... Uh, every time we do the text a number, I always think of that story and how weird it would be to get like a random 
somewhat, it seems, at least important message from somebody you've never met before. Uh, to get a message from an absolute stranger, and how do you process that, and how do you respond to that? That is uh, the question that Abraham and Sarah had to work through in Genesis 18. Uh, how do you respond to a seemingly important message from someone you've never met before? Uh, what do you do with that? You know, Genesis 18, that famous Christmas text that you hear at every Christmas Eve service. Everyone, the pastor stands up and says, turn to Genesis 18. Um, that's where we're at tonight. And, and just to make sure that we're all caught up, if you haven't been here or maybe you forgot a little bit, our story with Abraham starts in Genesis 12 where uh, God shows up to him and says, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to make a great nation from you. I'm going to make like a nation full of people out of you, Abraham. But the problem was, if you paid attention just seven, I think, verses earlier in chapter 11, we read this line that Abraham was married to a woman named Sarai and Sarai was barren. She's the first person in the Bible to for us to see that happen after people are having kid after kid and this be fruitful and multiply command and blessing keeps going. And then it comes to Sarai and she was barren. And so this becomes obviously an issue. How do you make a nation full of descendants out of a couple that cannot have one single descendant? How do you do that? But God later comes up and not only confirms the promise, but adds to it. And we talked about that last week. In chapter 15, he comes and he tells Abraham, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And Abraham goes, uh, I don't have any kids, God. And, and God sends him outside and says, look over the sky. And he looks up and there's all these stars. And he says, I'm going, to give you, I'm going to give you as many descendants as the stars that you can count up there, if you even could count them. And then later in 17, he comes to him and, and says, not only that, I'm going to make many nations from you. And many nations, and this is the many nations from Sarai, we're changing her name to Sarah, God says. And many nations will come from Sarah, and kings will come from Sarah. And, and this is a little bit awkward because, see, in the chapter before, Abraham had tried to help that promise along since, you know, nothing had happened in like 13 years since he had received that promise. He tries to help that promise along by um, taking, and it was Sarah's idea to take Sarah's maidservant, Hagar, and, and to sleep with her and have a son by her. So at this point, he's got a son, Ishmael. And, and when God says, I'm going to bring many nations through Sarah, Abraham goes, whoa, uh, God, I don't know if you know this, but we're really old. And, and Sarah's never been able to have it. And he says, if, only, if you would just, just make it happen through Ishmael. I already got a son, God. I, I, I know how impossible this is for things to go through Sarah, but if you'll just make it happen through Ishmael. And God says, no, no, no. It's not how I'm doing this. I'm not doing this through natural human ability. I'm not doing this through your own planning and your own physical abilities with this woman over here, Abram. I'm doing something that only I can do. And that brings us to our text in Genesis 18, where Abraham one day is sitting outside his tent. He's sitting in the shade in the heat of the day, and these three strangers come walking up and approaching him. These three strangers that, that some people get a little confused over, actually they get really excited over because they start talking in the voice of God. And so some people want to make that God. Some people want to make it the Trinity. More than likely, this is just three angelic figures, three 
divine messengers come to, to Abraham. But he doesn't know that at the time. He just knows they're these three strangers. And he offers to make them a meal because that's what you do back then in Near Eastern hospitality. And so they sit and they stay. And he runs and he tells Sarah, start baking bread. And he goes and he slaughters a calf. And they prepare this meal and they bring it out. And they're sitting there talking and hanging out at that time. And that's when this strange conversation takes place. In Genesis 18, starting in verse 9. says this, they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. And Yahweh said, I will surely return to you. So this is God speaking, but speaking through his spokespersons here. Yahweh said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. The way of women had ceased to be. That's, that's the writer's kind of nice way of saying she's gone through menopause. She cannot have kids anymore, even if she wasn't barren. Like even if, even if maybe that was just a fluke. Now for sure the time has passed. She's no longer able to bear children. He wants to make sure that that is known. That no matter what she wouldn't be able to at this point. She's doubly unable to. And then in verse 12 it says this. So Sarah laughed to herself saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? And Yahweh said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for Yahweh? That last sentence right there. That's the key. See, for eight chapters and 25 years at this point, we have known and tracked with this fact that Sarah cannot have children. And yet, God has promised that she will. And the reason why she laughs from inside the tent is because the promise that God makes to her is laughable. It's ridiculous. They're not stupid back then. A lot of times we think of like people back in Bible times, they were all idiots and they were just willing to believe any kind of miracle story or anything like that. No, 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 they know how this works. She knows that she hasn't been able to have children and she knows that she's past the point. They knew that that she could no longer have kids at this. And so when she hears that, she laughs. This is crazy. But this rhetorical question has undergirded the entire promise from beginning to end. Is anything too hard for Yahweh? That word hard, actually, we, we don't have an English equivalent for it. It's not one that we can really translate. Um, it's used in Proverbs 30. When the writer says that there are these four things that are beyond his understanding, he, he, he uses the word wonderful, too wonderful for me, but, but the word is the exact same one that's used here in Genesis 18. It's, it means kind of that idea, something that is uh, beyond comprehension, something that is unfathomable, supernatural, impossible is the word. Is anything too unfathomable? Is anything too impossible for the Lord, for Yahweh? And you may wonder sometimes, I know I have, why is it that God waits after coming to Abraham at 75 years old? Why does he wait so long before he finally gives him a kid? 25 years. Could it be that God intentionally waits to the point where it would be impossible for Sarah to have kids? Could it be that he does this on purpose so that there would be no doubt 
so that there would be no mistaking, so that they wouldn't go, oh, it was just bad luck before, but now, hey, we finally got pregnant. No, maybe I believe God wants it to be known that it is not humanly, physically possible for this woman to have kids before he's going to do that. And then, three chapters later, the promise is finally fulfilled. It's in Genesis 21 in the first seven verses, which is actually kind of crazy. Only seven verses are devoted to this birth that he's been talking about for now ten chapters and 25 years, a quarter of a century, ten chapters. That's longer than a lot of books in the Bible have been devoted to waiting for this promise. And the writer only gives us seven verses. And if you read them, they're fairly ho-hum. It's literally, and the Lord did visit Sarah that next year. And he did keep his promise. And she had a kid. It's, it's really kind of straightforward like that. You would expect a little bit more fanfare over this. We've been waiting 10 chapters. They've been waiting a quarter century. You'd expect this to be a bigger deal, but it's not really made out to be a huge deal in the text. And here is why. It's not because Sarah having a baby is not amazing. It is. It's because Sarah having a baby is not surprising. Or at least it shouldn't be. Of course God can create a covenant people for himself from a woman who can't have kids. Is anything too hard for Yahweh? And so the writer doesn't get ecstatic about it. Of course he's going to do that. He said he would, and there's nothing too hard for him. And so he brings it to pass. And many years later, God does this again. Now we're not at 2000 B.C., we're at about 5 B.C. And all of Abraham's descendants, and all of the promises that God made to Abraham now, uh, now lie in complete ruins because of years and years of rebellion and sin on behalf of the Israelite people. God promised that he would be a multitude of people. There is no multitude left now of the Israelites, of Abraham's descendants. As a matter of fact, of the 12 tribes of Israel that came from Abraham, only two of them even exist anymore. Ten of them were carried away into exile seven centuries earlier and disappeared, never to be heard from again. They're called the Lost Tribes of Israel. They were assimilated into the rest of the pagan people when Assyria brought them out. And so they no longer existed. There is no multitude of people. They do live in the land that God promised to Abraham, but they do not possess it like God promised to Abraham. No, Rome owns the land now. And they live there as um, servants to Rome. And they do not look like a great nation like God promised. And they don't look blessed like God promised. And they certainly don't look like they've been a blessing to the rest of the world like God promised. They spent too much of their history trying to be like the world instead of being able to bless the world. And so nothing about this position looks enviable. Nothing about this position looks like God's promise has held out for very long. And then, much like in Genesis 18, a divine messenger appears to a woman who shouldn't be able to have any kids. But not because she's too old, but because she's a virgin. Because she shouldn't be able to in that place. And much like he said about Sarah... He comes and says to this woman that she will give birth to a son and that a king will come from her. That this son will be king. Luke 1 tells us this story. Go there in your Bible. 
Luke 1, starting in 26. Now here's the passage you hear at Christmas. Here's the one you know. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now this is all really great. This is all really cool, except for the whole virgin thing. Don't, don't because you've heard this story so many times, don't ever look how crazy this is. How absolutely ridiculous, how absolutely laughable that statement is. If you were to head home over this Christmas break and uh, find out that one of your friends from high school had gotten pregnant over this last semester, and you went and talked to her, and you asked her who the father was, and she told you no one. Um, and she told you, actually, no, no one. I just, I just became pregnant. It just kind of, I woke up one morning, it just kind of happened. Um, it, was, it was a miracle, actually. Um, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't even for one second ever start to wonder, well, maybe. Right? <laughs> you, would, you would know this girl is a liar. Or crazy, even crazier actually if she says, actually God did it, okay? That's where it gets really crazy because that's not how these things work and we know that. We know um, that you cannot have kids this way, that you cannot be a virgin and be pregnant. That is impossible. It is beyond comprehension. It is laughable and Mary knows this too. And she doesn't seem to doubt it when God says that it's going to happen. But she does have questions. She does have some questions like, uh, how is that going to work? Verse 34, And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. Elizabeth, like Sarah, was an older woman who had been barren her whole life, and she was also able to conceive. Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And so if you don't know the answer to the rhetorical question in Genesis 18, 14, is anything too hard for Yahweh. Luke is here to give you the answer. No, nothing will be impossible with God. The God who in Genesis formed a covenant people against impossible odds out of nothing, out of nothing that human beings could offer because Abraham and Sarah couldn't do it, that same God shows up in Luke to do it all over again to make a covenant people for himself out of nothing. Only this time he's not going to limit it to a race or to a bloodline. It will be a people made of every nation and language on the planet. Anyone who will place their faith in Jesus 
as the Son of God, as the true Son of David and King of the earth. And he's going to do it in the most, by the most unfathomable fathomable means yet. He's going to do it by Christ, the second member of the Godhead, becoming an infant. The most important miracle in all history, in the Bible, in the scriptures, lifted up as the biggest and, and, and kind of laid as the cornerstone for our faith, easily, is the resurrection. It's the most important one. As a Christian, it is the one that our entire faith is built around. Paul says so in 1 Corinthians 15. But for my money, the craziest, the most mind-boggling, the most amazing miracle is this one right here is the incarnation. This idea of limitless God in limited form, of an all-powerful creator becoming weak, of the omnipresent being who has lived outside of space and time for all eternity is now contained in this one little box, this feeding trough in the middle of this village in South Judea. The idea of the immortal king becoming killable. That's what Christmas actually is. You know that, right? That's like the whole purpose of it is not to be cute. It's how, how do we get the immortal God to be killable? Because he had to become able to die so that in his death and resurrection we would be able to live. That's the point. It's the only way this whole thing works. And that idea that you can take God who is unchanging, who has not changed from all eternity, and place Him in this little weak body, and He'll spend the next three decades breathing and sweating and crying and, and laughing and bleeding and dying. That's, that's just beyond what theologians are even able to make sense of fully. But that's what God does because nothing is impossible with him. And so this Christmas, um, when you see a nativity, when you see a little picture or a painting, when you see a Christmas card with that little nativity scene and the manger in there, I hope that the question of Genesis 18, 14 will ring through your head over and over and over again, is anything too hard for Yahweh? And I hope that the answer supplied in Luke 1.37 will be the response over and over and over again, for nothing will be impossible with God. And I hope that you'll remember that the God who kept His promises then is the still, still the same God who keeps His promises now. The God who promises to save you and to make you holy and to make you like Jesus and to deliver you from temptation and to be enough for you and to satisfy you, He still keeps those promises today. That when you go home and you find yourself struggling and you think to yourself, I will always fall back into this same sin over and over and over and over again. Let that question come back to you. Is anything too hard for Yahweh? When you find yourself wondering if you're going to have your whole life with this stony, dry, rock-hard heart that cannot seem to delight in God or get excited about the things of Him, may that question move through your head again. Is anything too hard for Yahweh?
That when you wonder if you'll ever be able to forgive that person who wronged you in such a wicked way, may that question roll through your mind again. Is anything too hard for Yahweh? If you wonder if you'll ever be able to be forgiven for what you've done, is anything too hard for Yahweh? If you wonder if you'll ever have the courage or the words to talk to that family member or that friend of yours who needs to know about Jesus and you feel like it's never going to happen and you don't even know how to start with that, is anything too hard for Yahweh. I pray that you'll ask the question and I pray that you will allow the text to respond back with Luke 137. Nothing. Nothing. Nothing will be impossible with God. That what He promises to do in you, He is able to do in you. In spite of whatever it may feel like in your life, in spite of whatever obstacles there may be, in spite of your own screwed upness that you cannot seem to get past, nothing will be impossible with God. He is able to see you through to the end. He is able to make you like Jesus. He is able, as Romans 8 says, to use all things for your good. And by good, he means to form you into the image of his son, Jesus. He is able to do those things. Nothing is impossible with God. We want to pull the band up here again. And they're going to lead us in a couple more songs. They're going to sing my favorite Christmas song, uh, which is O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And I love that song because what that song is, it's, it's, a, it's a song written from the point of God's people, of Abraham's descendants, who have messed themselves up with sin and who are suffering the consequences of it and are longing for God to come and bring them a Messiah again. And so I love to sing that song because I can identify with that. Um, part of God's people who has screwed up and gotten myself into trouble and is longing for the Messiah to come and make things right. To come and make things right in my heart right now and also um, to come again and make the whole world right again, to make it as it ought to be. And so uh, we want to give you a chance to sing out along with what Abraham's descendants might have cried out for 2,000 years ago and what the church has been crying out for ever since then as we prepare our hearts for Christmas to cry out, O come, O come, Emmanuel, that is, God with us, and to trust that whatever he does or whatever he promises to do, he is able to do through Christ Jesus. Uh, Let me pray, and then we'll sing. Dear God, you are not just good, you are strong. You are powerful. And there is nothing that you cannot do. But my heart needs to believe that, and I struggle to sometimes. And I believe probably that my brothers and sisters in here do as well. And I believe um, maybe there's someone in here who doesn't even know if they, what they think about you. Um, But I pray, Lord, that you would ring this truth deep into our hearts this Christmas season, that nothing is impossible with you, that nothing is too hard for you, and that we would trust you to do the work to change our hearts, that you would trust uh, you uh, to make us alive, to give us joy in Jesus, and to satisfy us, to help us to do what we ought to do. Help us see that this Christmas and love you more because of it. I'm asking that in the name of Jesus. Amen.